0: Let me try one more time. Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. There we go. I didn't turn my mic on. Welcome. We are glad you're with us. My name is Clint, one of the pastors of this church, and glad that you've chosen to join us even on this early service of these two services together on this Sunday morning. I began thinking about the words from the old classic song from the black church, Can Nobody Do Me Like Jesus. The song is not only a bop. But every Christian, even the most immature of believers, can testify to the truth therein. That indeed, can nobody do me like Jesus? He picked me up, he turned me around, indeed he is my friend. The king of the universe and the friend of sinners. There is no love like the love of God in Jesus. Looking at his love, whom he chooses to love how he chooses to love, why he chooses to love. There is just nobody like Jesus. And there's nothing more central to to Jesus and his love than the cross of Calvary. This love, you cannot know the love of God in Christ apart from the cross. You cannot experience the love of God in Christ apart from the cross. The central aspect and revelation of the love of God through Christ his son is on Calvary's cross. John Stott, the theologian, says the cross is the blazing fire at which the flame of our love is kindled. But we have to get near enough for its sparks to fall on us. This morning, as we continue our study through Matthew's gospel account, Jesus wraps up his fifth and final discourse and is indeed heading to the cross. The next couple of months, we're going to follow Christ on his way to Calvary. We're going to walk with him up that blessed mountain. We're going to see him go to that blessed cross, suffer and die a gruesome death, be buried and then resurrected on the third day, and then give this commission to the church to proclaim this gospel, this good news to the end of the earth. And so even right now, if you're visiting with us this morning, and especially if you're not a Christian, I would just challenge you, would you commit to journeying journeying up Calvary with us over the next couple of months? That you would consider, if I'm going to make a decision and a conclusion about who Jesus Christ is and what this gospel is and what I believe about him, would you commit to not just this Sunday morning being with us, but instead saying, you know what, if this is the center point of Christianity, if this is the center point of God's love, then I want to follow and learn and grow and conclude what I think about Jesus Christ based on what we learn even in the coming months as we journey up Calvary. This morning specifically in Matthew 26... We see Jesus head toward the cross. We see the Jewish leaders plot against him. Mary anoint him, even as we read about, and Judas betray him. And there's gonna be an especially stark contrast between Mary's affection and devotion to him and Judas's betrayal and greed, his rebellion against Christ. Main point kind of this morning as we think about and begin this march towards Calvary. We will learn that followers of Jesus should be characterized by self-sacrificial generosity rather than self-serving greed. Followers of Christ ought to be characterized by self-sacrificial generosity rather than self-serving greed. Let me pray and ask for the Lord's help. We will jump into the text. Father, please again, we pray, bless the preaching of your word by the power of your spirit, even for the glory of your son and for the good of these people. In the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I have three exhortations for you this morning from our text. Exhortation number one trust the king's plans. Trust the king's plans. Look now at Matthew 26, verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to the disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. And plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So again, you see in verse one, Jesus is wrapping up his final discourse with the disciples. We've talked over and over throughout our study in Matthew that Matthew's uh, gospel, some people, some theologians have called it's the discipleship manual of the church. It's built around these five discourses of Christ. He's just finished this final discourse talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and his final return, the day of judgment. And now he turns from those sayings, he finishes all those sayings, and he says to his disciples, cross is coming. The crucifixion is coming. This is actually the fourth time he's predicted his arrest and crucifixion. However, this time he tells the disciples it's soon. It's after two days. He also predicts in this moment to his disciples that the Jewish leaders will have him delivered up to the Roman officials who have the authority to crucify him. So one of the things I want to point out to you even in this moment with Christ and his disciples is that Jesus' enemies are plotting in stealth according to Jesus' plans. So I just want you to catch the irony of this moment. They're plotting in stealth, but according to his plans. We read that the leaders put out this hit on him, but notice the conversation they have. Like, we want to have him assassinated, but we got to do this quietly. He's already coming to town. He's already turned over tables in the temple because we were using uh, the religious things that, that are supposed to be drawing outsiders in. We've been using the church to make money, basically. He's already turned over tables that the money changes because of that. He's come in and made noise, and all these people have come down now on Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. So, this is a good chance for an uproar, for a a, a revolution. And so, they're like, oh, let's do this quietly. Let's wait. Let's wait about five days until all of this calms down, until the Passover is gone. And then, by stealth, we will secretly get him and have him put to death. They think they're doing this in stealth. He's got a large following. People are, are intrigued by him and, and, and watching and paying attention to his miracles and his power and his love. And they're concerned. And so this, this, these wicked leaders plot against God, but in so doing, they unknowingly submit to his sovereignty, and in particular in his sovereign plan in redemptive history. They want to wait for about five days, but Jesus said, No, it's going to happen right around Passover. In fact, he's going to use Judas's betrayal to make it all happen on his timeline. So these religious leaders are plotting against him and they have a plan. Jesus is like, no, that's not soon enough. I have a different plan. And I will use someone betraying, even one of my own betraying me in order to accomplish my purposes of redemption. This is a clear fulfillment of Psalm 2. The psalmist says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But notice the Lord's response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. They think they are working in stealth against his purposes. Instead, they are working in service to his purposes. Even one of those purposes that is beautiful and and ironic is that a part of when he's going to be crucified has to do with the fact that he's going to be and have this last supper with his disciples. That this is going to happen around Passover because he's connecting some dots. One of the purposes he has is that he'll eat this last supper with his disciples showing and demonstrating I'm the fulfillment of all that this was pointing to. Now, just by way of reminder, what is the Passover? Passover is that great celebration Israel had that they would commemorate every year when God delivered Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And he sent all the plagues. And if you remember, the the final plague was the worst one, the death of the firstborn. And that he sent over the death angel, the death of the firstborn. That Pharaoh would not let Israel go, that he would kill the firstborn. But he told Israel, you must sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and paint it over the doorposts. And in the night, when the death angel passes over, he'll see the lamb, blood of the lamb on the doorpost, and he will pass over, you. your firstborn will be spared. Those enemies of God will not have done that. Their firstborn will be killed. And finally, Pharaoh in Egypt, after the death of the firstborn, lets Israel go. And this Passover lamb celebration was one then they would, again, use annually to commemorate God's faithfulness to deliver them through the blood of the lamb. Well, friends, Jesus is saying, no, no, we're not going to wait till five days after the Passover. When this all happens, because I am the Passover lamb, I'm the greater Moses bringing forth the greater Exodus to set my people free, not from bondage in Egypt, but from bondage to sin. And they're going to do it by trusting in the blood of the lamb and the wrath of God will pass over them because of the blood of the lamb. So therefore this will happen on Christ's timeline, not on his enemies timeline. All who look to him will be spared from the wrath of God, will never die, but be set free. They're, they want to wait till after Passover, but they aren't in charge. He is. Which reminds us even of what we read last week, John ten eighteen. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Now, how do we think about this in application to us? How God governs the world and unveils his plan of redemption might not always make sense to you. But Christian, you can rest your head on the pillow every single night knowing God is not nervous about anything happening in your life. Every single night you go to sleep and close your eyes and rest. He's not nervous. (laughs) He's working all things together according to his plan of redemption. And if you're in Christ, that's according to your eternal good, your eternal joy. So no matter what you're going through, no matter how confused you might be according to God's plans, you can trust him. He's got it all held together. He has compassion for you. He sees and understands the pain and suffering you're going through or have gone through. He loves you, but he's never nervous about how it's all going to work out in the end. Even when the wicked sin against you, justice will be served. He sits on the throne and laughs at the wicked. He laughs at their plans. He laughs at their attack against him and his kingdom and even his people. He laughs at the enemy's attacks to prevent him from conforming you to the image of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion at the day of Jesus. No matter what your enemies do to you, he will complete this purpose. Even when his enemies plotted against him to kill him. They even needed his help from Judas' betrayal to make sure they met his timeline. (laughs) So we find great peace knowing that even our God's enemies are his subjects. They have as much or as little power as he wants them to have. They're responsible for their evil. They're responsible for their wicked sin, but they are not powerful enough to thwart his plans. What does this mean for his children? What does it mean for those who look to Christ by faith? What does it mean for sinners who are trusting in the blood of the lamb to take away our sins? It means Romans eight twenty-eight and 29 is true. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who called according to his purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. No matter what we go through, no matter how His enemies treat us, somehow, in some way, in the end, it will be used by our good King for His glory, for the advance of His kingdom, for our eternal joy, and our current transformation into His image. We can trust the King's plans no matter what His enemies do. We can say with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Trust the king's plans even when you don't understand. The scene is set. Christ has prepared his disciples. The cross is coming. His enemies are plotting, but he's in control. Now, the next scene is not in chronological order. So if you compare this with John chapter 12 and and Mary's anointing at Bethany, you're going to see some things that, that are details. And you might get concerned like, oh, is this a contradiction? No, no, no. Throughout our study in Matthew, We've seen and learned Matthew organizes things with a theological agenda, not a chronological one. John's ordering some things chronologically where Matthew's ordering, ordering some things theologically. And so what Matthew's gonna do is he's gonna contrast this anointing of this woman, uh, anointing Jesus and her generosity with Judas and his betrayal, his greed. So he's intentionally putting these things, two things together to show us something and teach us something. Again, contrasting Matthew's or Mary's uh, generosity with Judas's greed. Second exhortation then, treasure the king's grace. So trust his plans and treasure the king's grace. Verse six. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's done it, she has done it to prepare me for, for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now before we get into this, I just want you to notice the characters in these seven verses. So just pay attention to who all is present in this interaction. First, there's Simon the leper. The interaction happens at his crib. We'll talk about him more in just a minute. Second, there's this woman who we learn from the other evangelists, Mary, who demonstrates this extravagant act of devotion by pouring out this expensive ointment on Jesus. Thirdly, there's the disciples who are upset by the whole thing. Like, wait a minute, you know how expensive that was? You know how many people that could have fed? You know how we, what we could have done to the poor with the money and resources if we would have sold that? What a waste, they say. But not only that, we learn from John's account that Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead, and Martha was there as well. So can you imagine this crew in this moment? So the the leper, if he's there, that means clearly the Lord Jesus healed him. That's that's our our assumption. So there's a healed leper. There's a dude who's been raised from the dead. There's Mary and Martha. Like, think about this moment. And then there's, there's this anointing happening. The disciples are grumbling. Just put yourself in this moment in the power of the characters. But at the center of all these characters is the great character, Christ himself. Interacting with these outcasts, these whom society would have looked down upon, these whom would, no one would expect the king of glory would spend his final days with. What kind of king would hang out with ordinary people, even those who've been outcasts, whom he has healed except the king of glory, the king that we're talking about, our Christ. Nobody can do me like Jesus. But it demonstrates love like Jesus. Let us consider then what we learn of his gracious love for sinners from these interactions. First again, just think about the company as he heads to the cross. Like we're talking about the king of glory. We're talking about the king of redemption. We're talking about the agent of creation. The God of the universe has a few days left. And who's he going to spend time with? A leper. Simon the leper. Again, apparently Jesus had healed him. Lepers were of the most outcast of society. They would have some kind of, leprosy was used to describe all kinds of skin diseases. They were not allowed to be in a the camp. They were not allowed to stay among the community. They had to be outside the community in a, in, a, in a place for lepers, a leprosy kind of commune, where they would be together, ostracized, kicked out, removed away from all their loved ones. Even when they would be around loved ones, if anyone was around, they'd have to yell out, unclean, unclean. To let everyone know, ceremonially, I'm unclean, but also I'm a threat to you. And if you run into me and you touch me, you will become unclean. So stay away. You understand the pain of being one who literally has to tell everybody, never come near me, I'm too unclean. But not so with Jesus. When Jesus touches a leper, Jesus doesn't become unclean, the leper becomes clean. Christ, in his love, clearly at some point has healed this leper of his leprosy. And now this leper is like, Jesus, you can spend time in my crib anytime you want. Because now I can be in my crib. (laughs) I can be with my beloved people. And I can be with the beloved king of the universe, the one who healed me. The king of all kings is headed to the cross to redeem fallen humanity. And his company before this utmost important moment in human history Surely could sing, can't nobody do me like Jesus. He picked me up and turned me around, healed my body and told me to run on. He's my friend. His gracious love for sinners and outcasts is unlike anything we could ever imagine. And that grace and that love compels this extravagant act of worship and devotion in the woman whom we read from John's account and Mark's account is Mary. Mary busts up in the party. And demonstrates what Jesus Jesus calls a beautiful act of devotion by anointing him with this very expensive ointment or perfume. We learn from Mark's account that this was an annual salary's worth of perfume. So imagine just a whole year of your salary—that's how much this bottle of perfume cost. And she pours it out on him to anoint him and welcome him into Simon the leper's home. Now, common oils were used to anoint household guests. That was a common cultural expression. But not oils this expensive. So I'm trying to get my head around, what is that, what, like, what can we translate this to culturally for us to kind of understand what we're talking about? Let's just imagine Jesus showed up to your, to your, uh, to your house and a friend of yours kind of walks in and is like, Jesus, I've got this $50,000 bottle of wine. And I'm gonna pour you just a little bit of it for you to enjoy. And I'm gonna pour the rest of it out so you're the only one who ever tastes it. And you watch 50 grand just get poured out on the floor. Whoa, time out! That's the moment that we're looking at. That's what's happening right now. They're watching and thinking do you know how many homeless people we could take care of and feed with that much money, with that much resource? But Jesus' extravagant grace motivated Mary's extravagant devotion and worship. She she saw, like you're so, I've tasted and seen that you're good. You're worthy of everything I have. What is 50 grand when you're in the presence of God Almighty? Like when you understand and see, no, no, your grace and your mercy responds in me, a a, a response to say, I want to give extravagant devotion to you, not a little bit of devotion. She's seen, she's, she's observed. She loves him and for her it's nothing to pour out all that she has even in this moment. Brothers and sisters, there's a direct correlation between your awareness of God's kindness to you and the extravagance of your affection and devotion to him. There's a direct correlation of that. How hot is your devotion to Christ? Well, how high is your devotion or your understanding of his grace and kindness to you? She knew what this man has done for me is unlike any other. Therefore, I'm willing to give any and everything. She's a perfect illustration of everything we talked about two weeks ago in the parable of the talents. Here's my whole life. Use all of my resources for your purposes. All in for the glory of Christ. Those who are aware of God's wrath, that we deserve. Those who are aware of God's grace that He's given are those who are most filled with affection and devotion to Jesus that leads to a joyful sacrificial service. Like she's not upset about this. So she's not angry that she's devoted to Him like this. Again, it's like the parable of the, uh, the, the treasure hidden in the field Jesus taught in Matthew 13. The one who stumbles upon this treasure of the kingdom, in their joy, goes and sells everything and buys that field. Not reluctantly. No, no, no. She's found a treasure greater than any other treasure in the whole the universe. It's no problem to pour out this expensive perfume. But Jesus' disciples miscalculate the gravity of this moment. And even Mary's worship in this moment. Again, look at verse 8. They're upset. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? This could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. So they see and watch this, and they're immediately thinking Practically. That was too much money to do what you just did. We could have taken care of the poor. That's a good desire. The Christian church has always been cared, always cared about taking care of the poor. Always. God has a particular affection for the poor. We see that from the opening page of Scripture to the end. So that's not a bad desire. They're saying, no, no, you wasted money that could have gone to the poor. But notice again how Jesus commends Mary's devotion as a uniquely beautiful act. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Then he says, you'll always have the poor with you, but you'll not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she's she's done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she's done will also be told in memory of her. Jesus, though he was all about ministering to the poor, he was even poor himself, says that Mary's act was beautiful, Even if unbeknownst to her, how beautiful? That she was anointing his body for death. How could you say getting me ready for being dead is beautiful? Do you see the paradox in this? (laughs) Beautiful death preparation. It doesn't even quite seem to make sense to our natural minds. How would you say this is a beautiful act when she's getting you anointed and ready to be crucified and beaten to a bloody pulp to be killed? How is prep for death beautiful? Because it's through the death of Christ that sinners are able to have eternal life. What she's doing in this moment is not merely an individual act of worship, though it is. But Jesus is like, no, no, there's a moment going on in redemptive history. She's not even aware of how beautiful this is. She's just being a faithful follower of Christ saying, I'm grateful for your grace, I'm grateful for your love, and I'm responding with all that I am. But Jesus says, this is so beautiful because you don't understand, I'm about to suffer and die for all sinners, and I'm going to raise on the third day so that any who would repent and believe can have eternal life. This is beautiful. This is beautiful preparation for death. God's son will die on the cross. Therefore, this was not an act of waste, but an act of worship. And again, our sister surely had no idea the gravity of what she had done. And yet she's now a hero of the faith. And Jesus makes a promise. No, no, no. This is so beautiful. Wherever the gospel goes all over the globe, her story is going to be told. And you hearing it this morning is him keeping that promise. He demonstrates, no the faithful acts of my people who I work through, even when they don't know the glory of what they're doing demonstrates God's sovereignty and his kindness and his grace and his love going to sinners and moving through sinners to bring about even his own redemptive purposes. It's one of the things you know about God the more you read the scriptures. God's grace loves to use the least expected in the greatest of ways. He just, that's just how God likes to work. He loves to use the nobodies so that everybody realizes he's the one who did it. He loves to do this. And suddenly she's just like, I was just worshiping Jesus. Jesus, like, no, you was getting ready for all of redemption. (laughs) He loves to use nobodies to demonstrate his grace and his mercy at work in and through. And his grace also then produces generous disciples. Again, think about the parable of the talents from a few weeks ago. We're to be all in. All of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasures used for all of his purposes. When you see his grace and his mercy, you say, my whole life is yours. Not like this part of my life is yours. My whole life is yours. Do as you wish. And think about the contrast to the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler and that interaction? The rich young ruler comes up to Jesus like, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? They have his interaction about the law. He's like, I did all those good things. And Jesus is like, oh, really? Bet it up. Go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. Then come follow me. And what's the rich young ruler do? He walks away sad. Because clearly Jesus was not his treasure. He had another treasure more valuable than Christ. And he walked away from the ultimate treasure sad unto his treasures. This woman is like, I'll pour out all other earthly treasures because Christ is my ultimate treasure. See the contrast. When Christ saves you and grabs you and you understand his grace and mercy, you're like, my whole life is at your feet to be used for your purposes. This is why Paul says in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, if your devotion is directly correlated to your awareness of his mercy, then a good question would be, how might I increase my devotion? Well, by understanding more of God's love for you in and through the cross. So if it's like, man, my devotion is cold, well, you you don't understand the grace that's been given to you in Christ. Think of the glory of this man, my devotion is cold, so what do I need? Do I need a scolding? Do I need somebody to beat me up and make me feel really bad about myself? No, 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 no. You need greater pictures of God's grace to you. You need to see more beauty in Christ. You need to see more of his grace and his love and his mercy and his kindness. That's what's going to grow in you a devotion for him. Again, Paul in Romans 2:4, do you not know his kindness is meant to lead to repentance? It's God's grace in you and to you that suddenly you're like, "Oh, like I don't want to sin against this God. He's too good to do that." I want to flee from that. I want to run to him. So, how do you grow in your devotion? Grow in your understanding of God's mercy to you in Christ. So, go to the common means of grace. Go to the scriptures. Read your Bible not to get God to be happy with you. Read your Bible and see all that God did in order to make him permanently happy with you forever, not because of anything you did. And how you can't lose it. Christ purchased it for you. And see, this love is constantly coming. Go to his word not to check off a box. Go to his word to receive his grace. Go to prayer. Not because he's angry you haven't been praying enough. Go to prayer because he's your gracious father who's listening in response to the prayers of his children and he wants to hear from you and pray. Commune with the saints. Not to check off, I went on Sunday morning and did my religious deed for the week. No, no. I want to be with God's people. I want to hear this truth. I want to meditate on his grace. I want to grow in his grace. I want to help other people grow in his grace. Go to the common means of grace, word and prayer and communion with the saints, and say, God, help me see more of your love and your kindness. Can you imagine how glorious heaven will be as we exchange stories of devotion that God produced in us and through us and then learn how God's good providence used that to do things we weren't even aware of? Like, can you imagine getting to have a conversation with Mary? Like, what were you thinking? Like, when they were trashing you because you wait, like, wasted all that perfume, like, like, were you insecure? Like, uh-oh, did I mess up? <laughs> or did you know, it was like, what, what was going on in that moment? And then when Christ died and you, and you saw him suffer and die and then when he rose and you, you witnessed his right, like, what were you thinking, Mary? And can you imagine how we'll find out, man, that one time y'all were having lunch in this restaurant and y'all prayed together, I was watching, that encouraged me, and I I thought, you know what, I'm going to pray for the first time in my life. Then I started going to church and I ended up becoming a Christian, and I'm here just because I saw you pray at a restaurant. Like, when we get together and see how God's redemptive purposes are so much bigger than we understand and how he uses small acts of devotion in response to his grace, it's going to be glorious. Heaven is going to be so wonderful. Treasure the king's grace, for there's nothing better. Third and final exhortation, beware of greed. Beware of greed. In contrast, look at verse 14. Then one of the twelves, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. If our sister Mary is a grace-motivated, joyful, and self-sacrificial devotion to Jesus, Judas is an exact contrast. He displays greed-motivated, miserable, and self-serving wickedness Jesus was betrayed by one of the 12 don't skip over the first part of verse 14 then one of the 12 Judas followed Christ around he was with the king of kings in the flesh he watched the Lord Jesus heal the deaf make the blind see make the mute speak remove demons from those who were demonized Heal a bleeding woman, raise a girl from the dead, raise Lazarus from the dead. He watched Jesus tell the winds and waves, stop, and the winds and waves obey him. He heard the promise that anyone who left anything behind in this life would receive a hundredfold in this life and the one to come. He's currently having dinner with a dude who used to be dead. (laughs) Like he's literally having dinner with Lazarus at this moment. He's watched and witnessed Christ do all kinds of things and yet ready to betray him. Friends, let us be warned. It is possible to witness Jesus do all kinds of amazing things and still not actually love him. It's possible for you to have gone to church your whole life, for you to do mission trips and see God do crazy things on mission trips and still not be in right relationship with God. Judas, like all of God's enemies, was only willing to follow God if God got him what he really wanted. See, Judas betrayed Jesus for financial gain. He goes to the religious leaders who are plotting against Jesus, and he asks the first question greed always asks, what's in it for me? That's the first question greed always asks, what's in it for me? Now, I'm not saying it's always wrong to ever ask that question. But it's not the first question any follower of Christ should be asking. There's so many questions to ask before that one. Ask, will it glorify God? Is it pleasing to God? Is it God's will? Does it serve his kingdom? Does it advance his purposes? Does it serve his church? Does it serve my neighbor? Is it wise in this season of my life? Is it best for my family? Is this good stewardship? Then maybe you can get to, oh, what's in this for me? But it's not the first question to ask unless you have a heart full of greed. The question of the betrayer is, if I give up Jesus, what can I get? Judas uses Jesus to get what he wants, money. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This was the the price for a common servant or slave in his day. Exodus 21, 32. We're talking about four months wages for a poor person who would say, I'm going to enlist myself because I can't survive. What would that cost be? About four months wages. He rejected the king of glory for the equivalent of enough to buy a decent used car. How wicked is it to use God and his grace as a means to an end, rather than seeing God and his grace as a treasure worth selling everything for? This is one of the reasons, and I haven't talked about this recently, but this is one of the reasons I hate the prosperity gospel so much. It's full of fake pastors abusing, harassed, and helpless sheep while they get rich. So can I just say to you, do yourself a favor. If you regularly watch preachers on TBN, stop. Many, if not most of them, are using you and Jesus to get paid. They got a lot more in common with Judas than they do Mary. Mary. False teachers have always used Jesus to get something else. Faithful teachers preach Jesus to get and give God. God is the end goal. Not using him to get something else, but by his grace, having him. That's the end goal. False teachers find Jesus useful. Faithful teachers find Jesus beautiful. Pay attention to those who are teaching you the scriptures. Are they teaching you to use God to get something else? Or are they showing you how you don't deserve God, but he's given himself for you because he's gracious and kind. And he's all that you need. And any and everything else is a sweet gift that you can just lay down at his feet and say, how do you want me to use this? Let's go a, a step deeper and notice the self-serving wickedness of Judas's greed. Do you know who led the complaint among the disciples about Mary's act and how wasteful it was? John chapter 12, verse 4, we read, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? Judas was the one who was super upset and led the complaint of the disciples about Mary's waste of this perfume. And do you know why Judas was so upset about this waste of money? Was it really for the poor? John 12, 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor. But because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So Judas carried the money bag of the disciples. Money was given to them to use for ministry and even to minister to the poor and would regularly steal from it for himself. And so in this moment, Mary gives this great devotion to Christ in worship. And the disciples complain, this feels wasteful. Again, understanding they want to care for the poor. But particularly Judas is like, no, why is this not going into the money bag? Because we care about the poor. And really, for him, it's like, and that's where I steal my money from. So notice the wickedness and self-service of Judas's betrayal. Greed will stoop to wicked levels of deception to get what it wants. Even the wicked level of pretending to care about good things like feeding the poor. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. We see and learn from Judas, those who are bored with the grace of God in Christ turn to self-serving spiritual hypocrisy. False disciples only use Jesus if he gains them something else. But eventually, once the false disciple realizes Jesus won't submit to my will to give me what I want, they're willing to betray him. You see this even now as people abandon their faith. Nothing's new under the sun. No, no, no. I want Jesus as long as he gives me that. He don't give me that. At some point, they're going to be willing to betray him in order to get that. This is what we see in Judas. This is what we see even now. God's grace being betrayed because of greed. The contrast between Mary and Judas is stunning. Those who understand the king's grace offer him all of their lives, including their prized possessions. Those who reject the king's grace will only offer a portion of their lives if he helps them get their truly prized possession. If not, their greed will make Jesus disposable. Judas shows us greed motivates Grace betraying devotion to self. Mary shows us that gratitude for grace motivates self-sacrificial devotion to Jesus. Beware of greed because it can lead you to betray the king's grace. I conclude this morning by asking you, what is motivating you this morning? Is it greed? Greed motivates you to use God to get what you want, be it money or applause or power or control, success, fame, pleasure, whatever. Whatever. Gospel gratitude motivates you to use what God has given you to get and give more of God. Gospel gratitude leads you to ask, what can I give? Greed leads you to ask, what can I get? Gospel gratitude leads to joyful and selfless devotion to the cause of Christ. Greed leads you to empty and selfish devotion to self. But really what I want to ask is, ultimately, who's the hero of this passage? is the ultimate point of this sermon and of this text. Be like Mary and not like Judas. Mary gave a salary worth of perfume as an act of worship to the sovereign king. Judas betrayed Jesus for enough money to buy a used car. Now, as Christians, we certainly want to live more like Mary than Judas. So, yes, be more like Mary rather than Judas, but don't stop there. The ultimate goal of this passage is not merely for you to resolve to be like Mary and not Judas. Remember where we started. Verse 2. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus is on his way to the cross to give his life as a ransom to make his enemies into his friends. There's no love like Jesus. Mary just anointed the head that will soon be decorated with a crown of thorns. Ultimately, the perfume's about the tomb in this text. That's what all of this is ultimately about. It's not ultimately about Mary and ultimately about Judas. It's showing us Mary is the one who recognizes Jesus and who he is. And this offering is pointing us to the tomb where he's he's being anointed to suffer and die and raise to save sinners like Mary and Martha and Lazarus and his disciples like Simon, like you and like me. And he did raise victorious over sin, Satan and death for those who trust him. That's why her act of devotion was beautiful. Because it was connected to his act of devotion. Her beautiful act pointed to his beautiful act. What is a year's salary when you realize he gave you eternal life? What is a career change when you understand the son of God died to save you and raise you from the dead? What is giving your life to missions when you're going to be with the king of glory forever and exchange stories of grace and how he moved throughout redemptive history? What is finding a responsible lifestyle budget, make as much money as you can and give all the rest of it and extra of it to gospel work? What is driving 45 minutes to come be at church? What is having to go to two services when you have to go to two services? Like, what is all this when you understand the grace of God in Christ? It's just Christians responding to the generosity of Christ. Paul, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you by his poverty might become rich. We live for him because he died for us to live. It brings us joy to ask us what we can give because of what we've already been given, namely him. So again, followers of Jesus should be characterized by self-sacrificial generosity rather than self-serving greed. If you don't know this God, this morning, what will you do with the king's grace? Treasure it or betray it? Non-Christian friend, we would just say, confess your sin ask him for forgiveness, ask him to save you, place your faith and trust in Christ and have the greatest treasure forever and enjoy life forever with him and with us. Believers, whatever he's calling you to give to him, do it gladly because he's already given you everything you need in him. can nobody love like Jesus. Trust the king's plans even when you don't understand. Treasure the king's grace for there's nothing better. Beware of greed, for it can lead you to betray his grace. Let's close in prayer.